As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm Matt Slater and welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. We've got a double header for you this week. Firstly, we'll be looking at ways to revamp the Champions League after PSG president Nasser Al-Khalifi told The Athletic that he wants to make it more like the Super Bowl. And on the domestic front, we'll be looking at the ever-growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots in the championship as parachute payments continue to help the top clubs and encourage the rest to bet the house on trying to catch up. Earlier this week, the PSG president, Nasser Al-Khalifi, who is also the chair of the European Club Association and a UEFA executive committee member, told The Athletic he doesn't understand why the Super Bowl has a bigger cultural impact than the Champions League, suggesting that half-time shows, opening ceremonies, among other ideas, should all be on the table. So, does the Champions League really need a revamp? Is the Super Bowl the example it needs to follow? Joining us now to discuss this is sponsorship and marketing expert, Tim Crow. So Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Well, look, Tim, so you're well used to sports rights holders, bosses, league bosses, club bosses coming to you and saying, Tim, I've got this amazing event, right? <laughs> Champions League final, for example, but it's not quite punching its weight. It's not being talked about enough. I think it could be bigger and sexier and better. What can you do for me? And and, and Al-Khalifi appeared to be saying that he was a bit underwhelmed by the Champions yeah, League. Yeah, Fields was doing a lot of hard work. You know, he said, the phrase was the, the Champions League final doesn't feel like or fe- feels like it should be bigger or doesn't feel like it's as big as the Super, you know, Super Bowl. Super, Super Bowl, Super Bowl, thought, yeah. Which yeah. I thought was a really interesting comparison. So, yeah. so what, do you, what do you make of that? I actually found the, the interview quite refreshing. I mean, w- when somebody in football administration stands up and says something and kind of, I think Adam used the phrase like workshopping, as someone who's been involved in a lot of innovation in sport, you know, over the years, starting way back, you know, I talked about, you know, bringing Sky into the fold as a broadcaster of English cricket. That was not without its criticism at the time. The question for me is, what is it, what is it that you're trying to do here and why are you trying to do it? So, so to go back to your point around if someone, you know, comes to me and says something like that, my first question is why? Why do you, why do you want to do it? 
because there has to be big strategic rationale for trying to do something like that. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is, right? Because, you know, I think Adam made the point in, in the piece that in terms of number of viewers, and that's a pretty basic KPI, but it's still the most important one when it comes to, you know, the money. The Champions League final is much, much bigger than Super Bowl three, four times, right? So in that instance, what is it that you're, you know, why are you trying to grow? Where's that growth going to come from? Because 400 million people is a lot of people for a football match. The, the FIFA World Cup final get gets more, but obviously that's on a global stage and it, you know, it completely dominates the world of football like nothing else. So where where is that extra, extra, you know, what, what is he trying to do and why is he trying to do it would be the case that, you know, that I would ask because it's not easy. I mean, one of the things about the Champions League actually is creatively, it is quite tough to do stuff because it is so controlled one of the interesting debates that's been going on is the extent to which the clubs can get more involved than they are now creatively and i think you know that could not but but fundamentally you know the champions league started off as a very controlled tv-based experience where you know even the broadcaster hands over to kind of champions league tv and you have to show the anthem and you have to do all the things that uh, run the anthem you have to do all the things that you've got to do so i think the answer to this may be actually what happens in the middle between the clubs and the centre, but I go back to why. What is it? What is it you're trying to do to grow what is a huge audience? Well, I just—I mean, I think the why nearly always comes back to money, doesn't it? But just to sort of drill a little bit into this Super Bowl Champions League final comparison, which Nasser Khalifi chose to make. We'll go through some of the the, the 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 ideas he had, I think, point by point, because I think some of them have merit. I think some of them are, you know, kind of. I wouldn't go quite as far as no-brainers, but they certainly like, you know, des- deserve conversation but just on the comparison it just struck me as this was just the triumph of the nfl and the super bowl and perception they, they're very good and of course it's a massive event in america no one's no one's disputing that i mean the a standard nfl games a massive event in america it dominates the conversation there like nowhere else and, and maybe and i'm speaking to you as an employee of an american company maybe that's just a classic sort of european thing again being swayed by america's ability to just sell itself and just make a big noise because as you as you say when you look at the numbers uh, you know a super bowl gets 140 million ish global audience of which of which two thirds are two thirds are in the us whereas you I, I dare i say a bog standard champions league final is getting 300 million plus you know what where's the problem yeah exactly exactly i would say be careful what you wish for in terms of bringing in Amer- i mean anybody who's spent any time watching an american event in america live will you know the, the battering ram that you get i mean it's like the sport kind of interrupts everything else so the sort of sensibility of european audiences is therefore different you know from the the amount of advertising we get on tv during an hour which is far less than it is in the states to you know the whole media ecosystem i think you know we you do have to sort of pay attention to that but equally if he's thinking about right well the growth is going to come from other parts of the world where you know people are 
completely desensitized to that sort of stuff then you know but he, he didn't say that but i think that is um there is a sort of sensibility issue there and they've gone as far as i mean there is a very adam didn't sort of reference it in in the piece but team and uefa have gone a long way towards as far as they can replicating the halftime show well, I think that's uh, a good okay point, that you, you know that it's you a raised, pre-match yeah. it's a pre-match gig okay because halftime isn't isn't long enough but it's got so many of the attributes of the halftime show since they started to get it right. I mean, they had some appalling stuff to start with. I mean, the Black Eyed Peas without Fergie in Cardiff rather than, you know, the Manic Street Preachers or, you know, whoever it could have been. But, you know, the, 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 the sort of the Dua Lipa was the one that they really got right, which Liverpool fans love now that has become part of the Liverpool lexicon because you know that that was playing when they were parading the trophy and she played the pre-match gig so I think there's a there's a there's a kind of there is already kind of they're doing what they can do about it and it's even sponsored by the same brand Pepsi so I think no doubt in the back of his mind when he was talking was the well-known discussions that they've had about making halftime longer just let's jump in on that one because I was yeah. going to go I was going to go through some of his ideas from the piece almost in descent right. in descent Sending order, the halftime show, right? Everyone knows about the Super Bowl halftime show. And I, and I guess that is one of the things that the Super Bowl, the NFL has done well. You know, there's this outsized conversation around what is a 20-minute greatest hits medley. But it, but, but it has become appointments of you stuff, right? And it's talked about by entertainment reporters for a week before the game. So, so that would be a big tick for the NFL in terms of creating yeah, a conversation. And it's, and it's important to remember what preceded it. Because the, the, the halftime entertainment at the Super Bowl that preceded that was the worst kind of army marching bands. Right. And then someone said, well, this guy, Michael Jackson, seems to be pretty good. Let's you know get him and the rest is history. So it was kind of and another thing that people don't see but it's very important about the halftime show is that it keeps people watching. And therefore that means they keep watching the ads. Because one thing that they've done brilliantly is the whole idea of the Super Bowl ad, the Super Bowl halftime ad has become culturally very important in America, but not, not as important as, as some people would have you believe, but because there's still a lot of people in America who hate advertising. But the, the show is designed to keep people watching rather than stop watching and therefore to keep advertising rates high. Well, that is a very good point. So, so and, and I think what's interesting about Al Khalifi talking about, let's be honest, extending the 15 minute break to, to, jet, to jam in you know, a few songs is that Combobol, asked the question, the South American Confederation asked the question of FIFA and IFAB, the, the lawmaking body, only last year. Now, they had the, the this idea of, could we go to 25 minutes for our big game, the uh, Libertadores game? And, and, and FIFA and IFAB, said no now someone someone has someone now has formally asked i always sort of think there's a kind of a we're just waiting for someone to actually ask right that's your battering ram the next push is through and i'm wondering if al khalifi is sort of your next push that the at some point in the next few years someone will do a pilot and it will be the champions league final and we'll have 25 minutes for a, for a super bowl style Halftime show, possibly, and, and I think it goes back to my question about right. So, what what is the benefit of doing that? Because what the halftime show doesn't do, it doesn't grow the audience. It simply maintains it at a certain level. I mean, actually, the, the audience does grow sometimes by two, three, or four million, but it's marginal. So again, it's like, okay, why do you want to do that? You know, and and, and go back to your point. If it's about money, where is the financial return? Well, let's say so. Another one of his ideas, which I th- which I did 
would strike me as 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 a good one and relatively easy to do would be to start a Champions League season with a, with a big kind of showpiece game. So so ideally something like the defending champions to play on the first evening of the group stage now soon to be Swiss style Swiss style league. What what do you what do you make of that sort of starting with an event? We're going to be, we're going to say the dreaded words opening ceremony in a minute. Well, well I, I didn't want to say that, <laughs> but yes, all right, let's say that. <laughs> People are excited about the start of the Champions League anyway. I think the clubs, a lot of clubs do quite a good job in terms of the way they market it uh, with it within the boundaries that they can. There's a, always a lot of excitement about it. Again, I would question, it's like, well, why do you need to have what to all intents and purposes would be a pretty spurious game? You know, it would be pretty, you know, there'd be nothing in it. I think yeah, the, the, first you know, game. the, yeah, the you're right. clubs involved would, I'm not sure how seriously they take it. All um, right, okay, let's move on because that one's pointless. Okay, yeah. here, here's my opening ceremony potential jam one in here. And this this is, there is some evidence to suggest that this might work. So a Final Four style format, which we saw during COVID, of course. Now that was necessity. I think it was Portugal and you had your semifinals and final in the same place. And the feedback from the teams was good. And I don't think fans moaned about it either, right? So you could create a week worth of events in one place Nice little build up. I suppose it'd be three games. You could put an opening ceremony in there somewhere, couldn't you? You could. I mean, uh, interestingly, the Super Bowl has been trying to make the week preceding the Super Bowl as important as, as the game itself. You know, they've tried to kind of create happenings around the week. I mean, it, it, I think a lot of it does depend on which city you're in and what the temperature is, because uh, I don't know if you were at the, that particular one where the temperature outside was minus 25. Everyone was just huddled in, you know, waiting for the game to start undercover. And, and you know, the Formula One's been trying to do this as well. But I think it goes back to the point that we were talking about with the last one. What you've got there is high quality sport with jeopardy in it. That's what people like. And I think having that as a week, it, it definitely worked. Fans loved it. Clubs seemed to like it. That's the sweet spot. You know, if you can if you can find something like that, and that's where I kind of worry about some of this sort of spurious shoulder content and just throwing it in there for the sake of it, whether it's an exhibition game or an opening ceremony that is designed to do what exactly. Whereas that week, I think that final four really did work. So I think that's a good one. All right. So so we're talking about which I think you're absolutely right. This the sport jeopardy. That's that's what that's what makes us watch, right? So we're going to go from one extreme to the other, I guess. Here, the the Super Cup, which which is you know obviously a, a tournament between played early in the season. It's between the Champions League winner and the and the Europa League winner from the season before. And I've always thought this this game has nearly always passed me by. You know, I don't I don't follow a team. Neither of us follow teams that are likely <laughs> ever to be in this game. Steady so, on. <laughs> Listener, Tim's a Halifax Town fan. I support Southland United. We're both in the fifth tier of English football. We're a long, we're a long way from the Champions League. But anyway, so my, so I, uh, this game doesn't really resonate for me. I, I guess I would pay attention if you know two absolute powerhouses were in it. And I don't know. I'd maybe maybe watch the highlights if I heard it was a cracking game. But so so what do you what do you do with something like this that on paper it is good, but just sort of underwhelms unless you actually have skin in the game. So what could you what could you do with that? Well, let, let me answer that in a different way, which again goes back to that first question that you asked, which is when someone comes along and say we want to innovate. One of the litmus tests for me is if this thing disappeared, would people miss it? And I think if the Super Cup disappeared, a very few people would miss it. Uh, maybe some broadcasters, maybe some ad sales execs, 
one of the problems we've got with sport, and it's it's pretty much every sport, is there's too much of it that's meaningless. Less is more. And, and, and the one thing that kind of worried me about what NASA said in the interview is it felt like, you know, let's, let's try and bung even more stuff into a, into a pie pot. Uh, and I'd love to know what the Harvard Business School, I mean, he must be absolutely top of the Harvard Business School Christmas list now. Yeah, well, this, is, this them- is a, yeah, this is a reference to the fact that that the European Club Association had invited in, I think, a couple of guys from the Harvard Business School to, to give them a talk. And presu- presumably Adam spoke to NASA shortly after this because he was brimming with, with, with the ideas of the, of the last the last clever person that had spoken to him, which, which let's be honest, Tim, we're, we're all guilty of sometimes. I think you make a really interesting point there about scarcity value, which is, which is something that I don't hear enough of. And I'm quite surprised. I mean, the, the story of what I cover for the last four or five years has been more, just more. So... You know, we are talking, we're talking about Nasser Khalifi. The Champions League is going to 36 teams from 24 onwards. They're trying a different format. I don't think we have a problem with trying new formats, do we? I mean, should we, should we talk about the Swiss League, you know, the Swiss format for a bit? I mean, what, what what's your take on that? Look, I think any, you know, I made the point about actually you've got to start. It's not just about when you're thinking about innovation and growth. You can't just talk about what happens on the, off the field. You've got to talk about what happens on the field and the formatting of everything because one thing we know about in the in the world that we live in now is cutting through is incredibly difficult and creating better more compelling stories is really really key and formatting is key to that however you do it so like i say i always talk about that sweet spot the sweet spot where you know you get you get absolutely brilliant sport which has got jeopardy attached to it and you find what's the marketing advantage what's the marketing setup that you can put around that but you can't do one without the other you know otherwise you know going back to when Sky got the Premier League to start with they thought oh let's do something at half time and there are still Arsenal fans who talk about when they were there when Sonia walked out and mimed to play his hit you know you've got to they've got to be both things have got to be credible it was interesting that he didn't if you're going to make a comparison with the Super Bowl okay let's make a fully fledged comparison and talk about the format and how the Super Bowl gets to where it gets and how that works and you know because it's brilliant storytelling the way the thing actually plays out is very in a different in a very different environment where it's one country that plays with very heated rivalries and genuine genuine competitive balance i'm not sure that's where khalifi wants to yeah yeah exactly but you've got you know let's have that debate right because that's very much part of it you know it's not the same guys winning over and over again and 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 that's important well just a couple more to wrap up then tim i just wonder this this could be a very quick one because you might not have seen it this might be one of those contrived events that passed passed even you by Did, did you watch the World Cup FIFA draw last week, the entire sort of hour-long show. Unlike you, I didn't sit through the whole of it because I'd got stuff going on. I did watch some of it. I did not watch the preamble. Well, that's that's my which point. Which I suspect you're about to. Reference. No, well, that's what I think is really interesting because you, typical football fan, presumably tuned in. I don't think we still tune in, but, you know, we, we get the idea. For the draw, right? Now, if I was to tell you that took 45 minutes to get there, there was a bizarre cartoon that was something to do with engaging with kids. Completely, I've got kids. I'm not. I didn't. I didn't get it. There was. Um. There was some juggling of footballs. Fine. That was quite short. There was a sort of kind of dancey thing that had a bit of Arabic music, which I quite liked, and then some horrible kind of Western stuff, which I didn't. Then there was a single from an album, a World Cup album, 
and the song is an absolute horror show, like <laughs> designed by committee, various influences. It's just awful. I, I can't remember. There was some speeches. Fine, you've got to have some speeches. There was a really weird speech from a from a from a, a famous Arabic Egyptian actress <laughs> who meant nothing to any of the people around me, but I assume is really big in the Arab world. So that was probably what she was doing there. She seemed a bit overwhelmed. It, it was a strange show, and I don't know why we even had a show because the bit that everybody cared about that would have got blockbuster ratings and certainly drove a conversation was the drawing of the balls from pots. Yeah. It yeah. went quite well. Yeah, why I do mean, they do it, Tim? Why? Well, again, you know, that's my point. You know, if, if someone asks you, like, why are we doing any of this, right? In a world where with the young in particular, attention spans are shorter and it's harder to get their attention because they're distracted and where everybody is distracted, if you're going to tack something on to what is the main event like that there's got to be a good reason for it and you know, maybe some of that's contractual maybe it's you know so that the broadcasters have got more content that they can sell ads against you know whatever it is but doesn't sound like i miss much and i i haven't heard anybody say how good it was so again it's about it's just, why are you doing this why and, why? and, the, and the reason i ask you is because you know you you sit between rights holder potential advertiser you know you're you're presumably translating the, the the demands and the requests from both sides. So when the advertisers sort of say to you, oh, "I fancy a bit of football," seems quite popular. Where shall I where shall I put my pound? Are, are you going? Are you saying to the Nasser Khalifas of the world, "I've got a potential pound here for you"? This is the kind of thing they want. And and it, and and are you saying they want jeopardy? They they quite like scarcity value. Advertisers fundamentally they want to sell more stuff. The more eyeballs are looking at what they've got, and the, you know, the, the last thing you want is for your ad to appear in a context where no one's watching or no one cares, or actually people are saying, "What the hell is this?" Right? Because people do make an association between the brands and what they're, you know, what they're advertising around, what they're sponsoring. So of course they want the, the quality of the output that they're they're monetizing to be as good as possible. Of course they do. Now there's a difference between the sponsorship arrangement where you've got more of a say because you're in the inner circle where uh, versus you know, just being an advertiser and you're, you know, you're placed on, on TV, they, they have no say at all. But all brands want better content. You know, the better the content is, I mean, it goes back to that point around why have you got, why have you got an amazing Super Bowl halftime show versus some band marching up and down playing, you know, terrible tunes as they used to pre-87 uh, for the Super Bowl so that people are sticking with the big match. They're, they're watching the halftime show. So the advertising is worth the money. So again, it's that, you know, that, that sort of sweet spot. But to answer your question, of course, the content has to be as good as possible. It really does, whatever you're trying to do. And I don't, look, I don't get why. I'm glad I missed that show. <laughs> Honestly, the song is so bad. I know it's a bit of an old man thing to talk to moan about pop music, but... Oh, no, I, I mean, any... look, it's a really important point. They've tried and failed FIFA for a long time with the official music, as of IOC, yeah. as of so yeah. many people. Yeah. I mean, the, the music associated with... Music is an important part of this cultural thing, right? Yeah, because of course. if you Absolutely. are talking about the young, the young's number one passion is music. Bigger than sport, bigger than anything else, right? So if you want to, and I've been saying this for a long, long time to all of these guys, you need to have a proper music strategy as part of your youth acquisition strategy. But they don't. And it is it ends up with design by committee and some appalling. I mean, the Olympics, right? The IOC owned one piece of music, a Greek hymn written in 1896, which is the Olympic hymn, right? And I've been saying to them for years, guys, you're all about trying to get make yourselves relevant to the new generation 
and the one piece of music you own is in Greek and was written in 1896. What's wrong with this picture? Tim, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, no doubt we will speak again about the next advertising, marketing, sponsorship horror show. (laughs) Cheers now, all the best. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, we've talked about the divisive issue of parachute payments many times before on this podcast. Last year, EFL chairman Rick Parry told us he wanted to get rid of them. But they're still here. And according to a new report, still skewing the odds in favour of those who get them. In 2021, championship clubs in receipt of parachute payments achieved, on average, 16 more points than those without. And those clubs are three times more likely to get promoted. The co-author of this report is Dr. Dan Plumley from Sheffield Hallam University, and he joins us now. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. I've been talking to you and your, your colleagues at Sheffield Hallam for a while. I remember a really good, basically the first version of this parachute payments report that you did back in 2018, where I think you were the first academics to actually look properly at the impact of parachute payments. And for people that are listening and thinking, what's a parachute payment? This is the money that the Premier League gives to relegated teams. Now, the idea was to soften the blow, to help them work through long-term contracts that they would have, um, and also to encourage them on the way up as well, which I'm going to get into because I think that's become the bigger part of it. But certainly initially, it was all about softening the blow of relegation. Now, the amount has grown and their significance and impact has grown as well. Now, you, I think, were the first guys to actually sort of say, now, look, it is skewing competition. Now, that have I abbreviated the report too much? No, you're absolutely right, Matt. So what we were interested in is it was the value of those payments that were rising over time. And you're right. I think there was a point in time where they were kind of working how they were designed to do and to soften 
from the blow of, of relegation. But as the value of them has creeped up, which is obviously linked to the Premier League broadcasting deal uh, and where that money sits and, and most of that stays within the Premier League and then parachute payments were increasing off the back of it. At the most recent count, they're £90 million over three years. The previous iteration was £65 million over four years. So we can see the jump. I think what we were keen to focus on throughout those uh, phases was the impact that that has on the league below. So, you know, not just on the, the Premier League and, and the clubs that drop out, but the, the wider picture in the championship. So, yeah, we set out in 2018 to look at the impact of parachute payments on competitive balance as well. So we have to be careful in some respects because it's not, not the single aggravating factor, but it's a big factor w- within what was going on. So we wanted to look at that. And yeah, we mapped out the parachute payments against the overall balance of the league. And then we looked at isolated cases of, of teams that had them versus those that didn't have them. And we ran some comparative performance metrics, which is where the headlines of the what's gotten out into the, the wider world, where the headlines are about X club, X parachute payment clubs are, are twice as likely or three times as likely now um, to get promoted than those that don't have them. So that, that was the basis of the report. But yeah, I think our take on it is that they were designed it with good intentions, but has, as the Premier League has evolved and as the broadcasting money has evolved, they're, they're arguably now not fit for purpose in, in what they were designed to do. And they're actually stretching the gap further between the Premier League and the Football League as a result. Let's just explore that, that, that a little bit more, that point you make about the trend going in the wrong direction. So your initial report, I think you're right, a, a club in receipt of parachute payments was typically twice as likely to be promoted. It was also less likely to be relegated. I think you even had a sort of, you know, an average points boost. But your most recent report that came out last week has found that all of those gains, those positives have stretched. Yeah, and I, and, I, and, I, and it didn't surprise me, but to, to, to read it in black and white, I was like, wow. I mean, how, how can you, how can anyone say that they are not having a negative impact on the competitive balance of the championship. Yeah, I think that's where where we got to with it as well. And of course, you know, you have to see those numbers, but you're right. I mean, we were asked to do an update on that that paper to look at the last five years. And what we found in the original research was that the, the average points gap, which was uh, what you focused on there, was around five points, which means that basically for every single club that has parachute payments, and of course, it's not just three every year, it can be up to nine clubs because if you've got year two and year three parachute payments so for every club that has them on average they are earning five more points on the pitch and if you look at what's happened over the last five years we can that stretch to an average of of 8.6 points and that's when you look at it okay in terms of we can talk about the finance and we can talk about clubs that have more revenue than others and we can look at we know there's a big financial gap but when we start to talk about it in sporting terms it opens a few more eyes to that and i think we were it's very important that we we cover that as part of the report. Again, there are other factors at play, but this is an isolated factor that is having an impact, whether we, you know, whether we, we can dress it up whichever way we want, but it is having an impact. And that points differential there is something that is obviously really important because you know, an average of eight points is is a big gap. And that could be the difference between a playoff position or it could be the difference between a relegation place or promotion. And, and that has implications. So, yeah, it was important to focus on that. And interestingly, one thing just to tag on to that, which we might come on to, but th- there was one year in particular where the points gap 
think it was it was the season that was played behind closed doors pretty much for its entirety. And the points gap then went up to 16 points for that season alone. Was that the Watford Norwich promotion? You know, the straight, straight down, straight back again. Yeah. You know, the real yo-yo year. Yeah. Where, and also Bournemouth came sixth. So you had basically first, second and sixth for the relegated yeah. teams. Yeah. And the points gap was was quite staggering based on on where the other kind of averages had, had lied over the last few years, which again throws up some interesting conversations about the impact of playing behind closed doors and and actually, you know, all things being equal. And this is again part of the wider look at competitive balance is all things being equal in that season in particular, the clubs that were in receipt of more money in revenue terms, which is driven in some part by parachute payments, um, was causing a huge points gap. So yeah, it just kind of, again, as you said at the start of the question, we kind of know if we were to guess in that league, we would think that the parachute payment clubs have more chance of going up, but that's proven now over you know the course of certainly the last five years that's accelerating, and over back to 2006, it's been a trend that has been only going in one direction. No, yeah, I, well, I agree, Dan. I mean, I, I wonder if if the next stage of research, or maybe some there's some research already out there, it's firming up that link, which makes sense to me, but it's kind of proving it. I mean, we can look at individual examples. We can we can read the comments of people like Mel Morris of Derby County, who's made this point as well, that parachute payments are driving irrational behaviour, are driving, are forcing the other clubs not in receipt of parachute payments to stretch themselves. And, I, and I, look, it, it appears obvious to me, but I'm wondering if that's the next stage of research that you can almost kind of prove it. They have to rev so much higher to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something we've we've touched upon throughout this research. And, and again, you know, without pinning the club owners down and saying is this what you're doing you you never get uh, to an ultimate direct answer but we can see in the trend you know what we're looking at if we isolate the the average revenue of a parachute payment club versus those that don't have them we're talking about a 13 to 15 million pound revenue gap on average across the whole league we then look at the the main um, way in which the clubs that don't have them are looking to compete and, and as we know that often goes into player wages so if we look at some of the wages to turnover ratios of the clubs that don't have them, they're creeping up above 100% and into the 140s, 150%. So we've got some warning signs there that we know that there is irrational and unsustainable behaviour taking place. And again, it's, it's as, as I say, without pinning the, the owners down and saying, is this the way you, you're operating? We'll never know. But we've got warning signs along the way that are telling us that a lot of the clubs in that league and again for every club that does that there's another club that doesn't even have the capability to do it so we're almost talking about three separate chunks of clubs ones with parachute payments ones that are trying to gamble to close that gap um, and others that can't do that and that's is another concern so I think yeah there's some warning signs along the way there where we look at clubs that have and of course profit and sustainability regs are a part of that because we've often cited you know clubs looking at a three-year gamble against those regs to try and get promoted but only three clubs every year can get promoted and the fallout as we know from some well-documented cases for every club that might achieve the jackpot of, of landing the Premier League uh, promotion there are others that have, have gone the other way and um, and have seen some really dire financial consequences Sure I mean wh- one of the things that um, that has struck me about the entire debate on parachute payments over the last few years is is when I first started to raise this and th- this goes back to when Richard Scudamore ran the Premier League 
the defense of them was always around that initial idea, right? This is about softening the blow. And, and, the, and the, the examples that would be raised would be Portsmouth or clubs that have crashed through. And you've got to protect those because they've signed players on two, three, four-year contracts. And, and, and it seemed to make sense, right? And that, and, they, and that was always their first line of defense. What I've noticed over the last couple of years, and, and, and this is now under Richard Masters as, as Chief Executive of the Premier League, I mean, he has, he has he's said this a number of times, is that it's more the other way, right? What they're trying to do is encourage encourage the promoted teams to give them the confidence to well he doesn't say gamble but to but to go for it to to to, to go hire better players give them the two three year contracts with the confidence that if the worst happens and they get relegated it's okay so really I find it a bit more of an honest answer in that they're actually thinking about their own product they're thinking about the three clubs coming up wanting to compete from day one I I mean it's cynical in a way because it's like yeah that we're, we're absolutely screwing the championship but you know what? We're making the Premier League better and therefore people watch the Premier League and money, more money trickles down. So I do kind of sort of see their, their circular argument that, look, all is good. It just interests me that they've dropped that old argument and are now focusing on the Premier League better argument. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've spoken about this in the past, haven't we, Matt, in terms of we're getting into wider conversations here around governance and regulation. And, and we're absolutely right. We have to be aware of the fact that, you know, we have two different governing bodies there and, and the Premier League is is there to look after it, its member clubs. And, and that's its remit. And you know, we have to understand that and be aware of it. Of course we do. The challenge with that is that that is 20 clubs and every single season, three clubs will drop out and another three will go up. So because we've got that element of promotion and relegation which we we love and we want to protect and of course we do and, and we're all for that but we have a disconnect between the Premier League and the Football League in governance terms and also we have a I understand the argument of giving clubs room to spend and to and to challenge when you come full circle on that we then look back at the bigger problem which again is is the, the financial gap between leagues which is 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 forcing that anyway and it's forcing clubs also to try and land that jackpot because the jackpot's so big versus where they are but there's a there's one thing within that wider around looking at the financial imbalance between leagues and i think the other thing and and you know we, there's a point of principle here as well and, and it's tough is the clubs to a degree can also control some of this because if the clubs in implement wage structures whereby they have, um, and I'm not saying they have to be mandatory, but if you have an agreement at club level that wages will reduce upon relegation or wages will increase upon promotion, then in some respects, the, the issue of parachute payments solves itself. Because, well, I mean, well, Dan, but why can't you do it, man? Why, you know, relegation clauses, why not? If everyone well, agrees I, to it, it becomes a league rule. I, I completely agree. And I think the challenge there goes back to how, how are those votes cast and how is a change made and then we're looking at at the minute in the Premier League that's a majority of 14 clubs and and would 14 clubs at the minute go yes we will implement those as mandatory probably not so again you've got that dynamic between the clubs saying okay well we think in principle this is a good idea but we're all trying to compete against each other so we're not going to do that but it would solve those two things I think financial imbalance between leagues and looking at player wages as a, in terms of cost control mechanisms almost make parachute payments a non-argument because you don't need them at the minute we need them because the gap's so big and we've got we're either softening the blow or we're encouraging spend the other way but if you remove some of those other barriers then this doesn't become as much of a problem and I think that's where we ended up with the research and, and of course you know there's, there's not always a silver bullet answer it's much wider than that but there are things that the leagues and the clubs can do themselves it's just we've never got to that point where they've pushed the button on that well just as a final thought then Dan let's let's sort of play devil's advocate a little bit here is there any defense for them if we go back to that initial 
It's about softening the blow. And the fact that it's very hard, I guess, if you are a newly promoted club to encourage a good player to come join you for three years. Is there a way around this that we, we're not thinking big enough? What, what, what are we missing here, Dan? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that there are some defences of them. And I think, you know, we've talked about those already and, and they would be completely valid arguments. I think more wider what we've always called for as part of the research and and it is just as I say research that we do for academic purposes and then we try and push the message into the wider world Um, what we've always called for and would would continue to call for is it's more holistic than just one thing so you know if we're talking about parachute payments for this piece of research that's what the evidence is saying however we need to consider the answer or the recommendation against wider factors of financial gaps between leagues broadcasting distribution payments Cost control, which is still the single biggest factor for English football, is is player wages are the the highest cost and and have been only going one way. And also the gap within leagues as well, because, of course, if we're looking at promoted clubs and encouraging them to spend, we also know that the the top six and the big six is also a closed shop at the minute because of Champions League and and other things and an overseas split of TV pots. So that's okay as a narrative, but those clubs can try and compete in the Premier League, but they're competing in the bottom half of the Premier League because the top's off limits. So I guess what I'm trying to say there is that it's not a direct answer and there is no silver bullet, but if we're looking at parachute payments, we have to look at those other things and and we have to look more holistically about financing football and in English football. And, And what I would always go back to there in principle is closing the gap between leagues financially and some form of player cost control. And if we start there, we can start to make some real change. Yep, agreed. Lots on the plate for this independent regulator when, if we ever if we ever see one. A- another factor we've not touched upon, but yeah, that would be front and centre of it again. You know, if, if again, how many times have we said this? If, if the clubs can't do it themselves and can't agree to it, the only other option then becomes to force them. Hence where we're at with the independent regulator. But of course, still a very long way to go on that one as well. Indeed. Well, Dan, lovely talking to you. Thanks very much for your time. No doubt we'll speak again. Thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed that. Right, that's it. Dan Bardell has the weekend preview show for you on Friday and we'll be reflecting on that massive game between Man City and Liverpool on Monday. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. And thanks for listening. The Athletic.